Welcome to the Love on the Go podcast, brought to you by Carolina's Matchmaker. I'm Lori Burzak, and for over 17 years, I've been helping singles find the relationship of their dreams all over the Carolinas. Along the journey, I've met so many amazing professionals and experts from various fields, and I'm excited to introduce them to you. What's my goal? I want to help you look at love and relationships in a new way and to grow in your understanding of how love works. Let's learn together how people have overcome personal obstacles and have found love, first and foremost, with themselves. The ultimate goal is realizing that you are worthy and deserving of love. Let's get started. I'm excited to bring my colleague and friend to you today, Terry Orbach, who's also known as the Love Doctor. And she's a relationship expert, an author and speaker, therapist. She is a professor and a distinguished professor even at Oakland University, and she works at the University of Michigan Institute for Social Research, and she's also a media personality. But what I love most about Terry, um, and, I, and I met her, and I'll tell you, we'll talk about how we met in a moment, um, is that she's the director of a landmark study, and it's funded by the National Institute of Health, and she's been working with the same 373 couples for over three decades. And she's written a handful of books about it. Um, and I even graduated it with her science-based coaching course, which I use with my clients today. So she has been an inspiration to me. And I am really, really thrilled to, to bring her to you today. Welcome, Terry. Oh, Lori, thank you for having me. What a nice introduction. And it's so wonderful to see you. I know. It's so wonderful to see you too. So we met, has it been five years? We yes. had you, right? Yes. About something like, that. Um, something like that. So I'm one of the co-founders of the Matchmakers Alliance. And um, we brought Terry to one of our conferences. You know how every industry has conferences and people always laugh when they're like, oh, I never thought about a matchmaker having, you know, an industry and a conference. So we do, but our conferences are really fun. They're like either on a cruise ship or we go to like Utah and camp out at a spa. And we all like imagine like a whole bunch of people that are in love with love and introducing people getting together. And then there's Terry and she and I sat next to each other at a table and we were playing like games and all this stuff with our crazy colleagues. And we just connected so deeply that it was like tete-a-tete and uh, we just decided to be lifelong friends. And that's basically what's happened. And, and I've leaned on her. Um, I've, she taught me that you know, all about coaching and to a higher level. And she's just really been an inspiration to me. So that's kind of how we met <laughs> and you presented to the group. Um, and um, anyway, so I'm really interested and I've heard this before, but I want everyone to hear about your research project. Can you give kind of like just an overview of it and what it has taught you? Absolutely, Lori, and thank you. I love that meeting story. It was so much fun. <laughs> but in terms of my research, I have been following, as you said, the same 373 couples now for over three decades. All of the couples got married in 1986. It's the largest study of its kind in the United States. And originally we were interested in what keeps couples together and happy and what breaks couples apart. Since then, we've been interested in a lot of other really interesting topics, like once a couple gets divorced, what do the partners do? How do they cope and adjust the effects on children and who repartners over time? And what are the factors that predict who repartners in a happy, healthy relationship 
and who doesn't. So as you said, Lori, I've written three books from this study and it is continuing on. And in fact, we are just submitting another grant proposal to the National Institutes of Health in about Wonderful. 10 days, yes. So we're continuing to follow these couples over time. They're now in midlife. They're in their 60s, I would say. And we're very interested again in not only those uh, couples that have stayed together now for over 40 years, but who repartnered and whether or not those people are still together and health and well-being. The number one thing that I have found, Lori, is that relationships, happy, healthy relationships are so vital to health and well-being. And I think we forget that. Right. Or there are so many other things that we read about, like sleep and diet and exercise, and those are important. But what we have found research-wise is that happy, healthy relationships are the number one important thing, more important than sleep, exercise, nutrition, and a whole bunch of other things to your health and well-being, not only psychologically, but physically as well. So I think that's the most important thing that I have discovered, and I continue to discover how important relationships are to health and well-being. And how... How do you describe a healthy relationship? What is it that a couple can do to have a healthy relationship? Mm, such a good question. I think the number one factor is that you notice one another. And I know that sounds so trivial, hmm. but I think as couples go forward in time, you put the relationship on the back burner because life is full, right? Yes. <laughs> we both know that. Oh, yeah. We have children, we have our parents, we have exercise ourselves, we have maintaining our household, paying the bills work. And so we really think that we can put this relationship over on the back burner and take care of everything else. But what I have found is that happy, loving couples, healthy, happy, loving couples, mm -hmm. notice one another daily, regularly. And it's called Give us an example. What is it that we could do with a cup? As mm -hmm. there's a couple out there that's listening to this. So I think every day you want to wake up and mm -hmm. say something to your partner, like, I love you. You're great. You're wonderful. I notice you. You make my life exciting and wonderful. Or do something and act every single day, like hug your partner, make them a special meal or dessert, turn on the coffee pot in the morning. Uh, uh, put gas in their car. That's what my husband does for me, Lori, is oh, that, that when I need gas, he puts gas in my car because something I don't like to do. So mm -hmm. it's these acts or words of affirmation that significantly affect happy, healthy relationships over time. And the one thing that's really even more surprising or interesting is that men need that affirmation daily. Mm -hmm. either words or actions more than women do. I've heard this before, and I don't know, maybe I've even heard it from you, mm -hmm. is that women get that from each other, from their women friends, but men don't get that from their male friends, or sometimes they don't have a lot of male friends. And, you know, you don't necessarily want, you know, your husband, you know, seeking that out from another woman, that those words of affirmation, clearly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You said it perfectly, Lori, okay. mm -hmm. that women, we get it from other people in our lives. It's not only our friends, right. but our work colleagues and our family members and our children, even the stranger in the coffee shop when we go in, right? When I go in, 
the person behind the counter who knows me really well because it's the same coffee shop says, hi, Terry, you know, I like your new haircut, your glasses, your dress, your shoes, but men don't get that from other people. And so they crave it from us. So when, okay, so let's talk about same sex relationships then. And you probably don't have any of those in your study. So I'm not sure if you can talk to that or not. Mm-hmm. Um, would you find it's any... the same? Is it any different? It's actually not any different. Mm-hmm. What we know if I, I don't have any same sex couples in my study mm-hmm. because they're all heterosexual couples mm-hmm. who got married mm-hmm. in 1986. But yeah. when you look at the research, it's the same whether we're talking about opposite sex or same sex couples so that men need it more from their partners Mm -hmm. than women do period okay wonderful um and tell us about the study like what percentage of the couples divorced and then how many of them found love over time and then were those second because i've heard that second marriages have a even higher chance of divorce than first marriage all of those, that is mm-hmm. correct. First, uh, yeah. 46% of the couples in my study divorced over time. And that's actually very comparable to the national average in the United States. Okay. Between 45 and 50% of married couples divorce over time. But the really positive statistic, which is your second question, is that 71% of those couples who divorced over time found happy, healthy relationships over Mm -hmm. time. And that's positive. That means that if you are hopeful, and by the way, hopeful and being optimistic was a predictor of finding love again. Mm -hmm. So when you are hopeful and optimistic, you're significantly more likely to find love again. 71% of those couples who divorced found happy, healthy relationships over time. But you're also right, Lori, and that second marriages are significantly more likely to divorce than first marriages. However, there is a caveat. When second marriages have have children together, Mm -hmm. that reduces the likelihood of divorce. So there are lots of factors that become very apparent or an issue in second marriages that are not in first marriages that are predictive of divorce. Do you think that the people, or have you found that the people in your study that get married a second time have exceeded um, the national average in terms of it's, they've been more successful with their second marriage than the national average? And I have a follow-up question on that. And and that's an interesting question. I don't know if I can compare that they're more successful. And I, success is a a difficult term. Um, They're less likely to get divorced. Yes. um, Than the national average. That is the case. Okay. Um, Second marriages, even second partnerships. Because of that 71% that repartnered, 43% remarried. Mm -hmm. But what is it? uh, 28%. Uh, repartner. So not everybody who gets divorced. Right. And it's, yeah. And it's for me, I'm thinking the same, but here's, here's what I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. is that I feel like your participants in your study are deeply engrossed in their, in thinking about their marriage. And they know every year you or someone on your team is going to come in and ask a bunch of questions. So they're, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm certain that that gets them thinking throughout the year. What am I going to talk about on my, on my survey or the call or whatever that takes place? And I wonder if their thought process around and really thinking about their marriage is different from 
the regular person who isn't really thinking about their marriage at all. They're not going through that list of questions. And that sets them up for more success, whether, you know, unfortunately they get divorced the first round, but they learn something from, from that first marriage, not working out. Well, I think that's a great question. And we had the same question, Lori. So Mm -hmm. we decided to have what we call a control group of couples. Okay. So those were couples who were interviewed in year one, Uh but weren't interviewed again until year 16. Okay. So we compared those couples to the couples who Uh were interviewed many times between year one and year 16. And what we found is that if you are basically uh, satisfied Mm -hmm. that your relationship broke up or divorce. And I know that sounds really challenging to say satisfied, but many couples who get divorced are not bitter Mm -hmm. or angry or revengeful or want their partner back. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, right, there were no differences between those couples who were interviewed year one and year 16 versus many times over 16 years. Okay. However, If you were still revengeful, angry, frustrated, perhaps now for 15 years, because you got divorced in year two of Uh our study, then there were differences in between those couples who were not interviewed and those that were, if that makes sense. So it depends on your emotions surrounding your divorce. Whether or not you learn Mm -hmm. from your previous relationship that didn't work out or you did not. But I think you're definitely correct that whether or not you can take your relationship and learn from it, you're much more likely then to pick differently, to do things different the second time around. Do you find, do you believe that if people seek out therapy and kind of, I, I consider therapy as your your PhD in life in a way. And a lot of people look at therapy as, oh, I'm only going to go if there's something wrong or I'm in crisis or something. And for me, I mean, it is a regular part of my life. It's how I have evolved as a human being. It has opened up my brain. It has allowed me to have deeper relationships. I can analyze things on such a higher level. So I almost feel like everyone should be in therapy just so that they can grow because a lot of times you stop growing, you know, after you, if you hit college or grad school or high school, high school or whatnot. But I feel like if you're in therapy and you're sort of really able to bird's eye view, look at your life and your actions and everything and, you know, make tweaks and whatnot, that just life gets better. That's my opinion about therapy. Oh, I completely agree. Do you agree? With you. Well, I think you're a psychologist. 100%. But, yeah. <laughs> but that's my opinion. It's like, it's a, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a special thing to be able to be Absolutely. in therapy. And when you think about it, it's somebody who's listening to you and giving you yeah. feedback and asking you questions to challenge you and grow further. Right. Who doesn't want that? When we have friends, they're great. When we have family members, Mm -hmm. they're great. And they can help us and support us. But it's a two-way street with those people. When you're working with a therapist, mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. That's somebody who's only giving you feedback. You do not have to worry about asking them questions. Right. So I completely agree that it is growth producing and that therapists and coaches are mm-hmm. wonderful, even if your life is going well or your relationships oh, yeah. are going well. 100%. And I mean, you know, obviously for me, bumps in the road, but I mean, life, thank God, life is going well. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
really um, what I'm wondering is the people that are in therapy, do you find that they are more successful in their marriages? Well, actually we looked at self-help in general. Mm -hmm. So we asked individuals each year of the study, mm -hmm. do you, or did you seek self-help, right? And that can be a book, that can be a podcast, that can be a therapist, that can be a religious uh, clergy. Mm -hmm. um, and I can't remember, they may have been another, oh, even I think we said, did you seek help from friends and family? Okay. And what we found is the more you seek help, mm -hmm. the more your relationship is going well over time. So I think self-help, wherever you get it, again, a therapist is wonderful. And that's right. my opinion, just like yours, that that mm -hmm. is a great way to seek help. Mm -hmm. But there are lots of other ways that you can seek that help. As yeah. Well. Otherwise you're sitting there trying to figure something out for yourself and your brain is going like a toilet bowl. Like it can't, that's what I learned that from Eckhart Tolle, which I thought was really fascinating, but yeah. Yeah. you know, you're, you, you don't have the answer, but you're going to ruminate over it. And, and that creates all sorts of resentment and fatigue and whatnot. And you're never getting to the answers. You have to get outside of yourself to get the answers sometimes. Exactly. And, mm -hmm. you know, when we keep things inside, it just works on our own bodies, mm -hmm. right? It becomes yes. larger, yep. but also it's important to get different opinions. We are very common. Mm -hmm. um, when I look at all the relationship issues in the couples over time, it's not like there's thousands of them. Mm -hmm. We as couples, we as individuals in relationships have very common issues. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to know that we're not alone as well. Absolutely. And okay, so I don't want to give this away too quickly, but mm -hmm. you always ask the question, what do you think is the number one reason that people get a divorce? Mm -hmm. Um, so can you share what, what, what your studies have found? Mm -hmm. Well, my studies, number one reason why people get divorced is what I call frustration. Mm -hmm. And frustration is the difference between your expectation of how something should be. And then the reality of how it is or does occur. And so when we have these high expectations, or even when we believe these myths, for example, that. Uh, all relationships don't have disagreements, differences, and conflict, right? They do. Mm -hmm. All mm -hmm. relationships do. But if we think mm -hmm. that ours is the only one that does, mm -hmm. or another myth that many people have is that passion and excitement continues at the same level, no matter what you are, what year you are in your relationship. That's also a myth. So mm -hmm. if you believe that myth and then the reality of your relationship doesn't match that myth or expectation, you get frustrated. And what I found is that frustration eats away at happiness. And I can actually map out happiness. And the more you believe these myths or the more you have all these should statements in your head, the less happy and the more likely it is that you get divorced over time. And also, didn't you say it also has to do with unmet expectations? Mm -hmm. So give an example, a specific example of that from your study. So we asked all the partners, what are your top expectations mm -hmm. for an ideal relationship? Mm -hmm. And then is it met in your relationship? So one of the examples is, is that if you have free time, 
you should spend that free time with your partner. So if that's something that you have as an expectation, Mm -hmm. But yet when your husband or wife or partner has free time, they go on a girl's weekend Mm. or they go to a movie with their parent, mom, child, right? You're going to be unhappy because your expectation is not being met. So one of the things I also found is that when you know your partner's expectations, their top expectations for a happy, ideal relationship, then you can either meet those expectations or if you don't want to meet them, like you really want to go on a vacation with your best female friend rather than your partner, you can sit down with your partner and talk about why you would like to do that girls weekend, that you'll put something else on the calendar with your husband or spouse or partner. And then you can negate or you can offset that high expectation that if it's not met will lead to frustration and unhappiness. Very, very, very interesting. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about like the number one factor that leads singles to find love. So that is fascinating because again, following these singles over time, mm-hmm. I can see who repartners and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I can look at what are the factors that predict who repartners in a happy, healthy relationship? Mm-hmm. And what I found is that couple, I mean, individuals, sorry, singles mm-hmm. who let go of the emotional baggage connected to a previous relationship or marriage mm-hmm. were significantly more likely to find love again. And so what that means is emotional baggage. We all have emotional baggage, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's heavy or large, and sometimes it's small. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's positive, I still want that person back. And sometimes it's negative, I'm really upset and angry that that person did what they Mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. If you can say, I don't feel much of anything toward an ex or a previous relationship, Mm -hmm. that's when you have little emotional baggage, and you're significantly more likely to find love again. But if you say, on the other hand, I'm really angry at my spouse, my ex-spouse, former spouse, or I really wish I would have done this, I could have done that, I really want to try again to get that relationship or partner back, you are significantly less likely to find love and repartner again. So it's really important to let go of that emotional baggage, that strong emotional connection connected to a previous partner or spouse. A lot of people come to me and they're still angry or they're still upset. I had a woman crying on the phone with me today. You know, she spent 39 years of her life with someone and it just didn't work out at the end. Um, And um, what, what would you say are a few good ideas for people to be able to learn how to start letting go of those emotions? Mm -hmm. First of all, that's very common and it is challenging. Mm -hmm. It is not easy to let go of a relationship that you've invested in, loved, had children, you know, built a home and everything with. It is not easy. And I I just want to say that, Lori, because I don't want to appear like these strategies, you're going to do them and boom, it's Mm -hmm. gone, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that there are a few strategies that could be helpful. The first that I think is very science-based 
is that you want to blame the relationship or the two of you. So for example, when people get divorced or break up in a relationship, they have a tendency to blame the partner. Like he wasn't emotionally ready. She had an affair. He was gambling, right? Mm -hmm. And, or you're likely to blame yourself. Mm -hmm. I could have, should have, would have, if I only would have done this. I should have communicated better. Mm -hmm. And when you blame other, you hold on to the anger. And you can even hear it in my voice. You, right? Mm. You did this. When you blame yourself, you hold on to sadness. You mm. hold on to disappointment. When, however, you can blame the relationship and instead come up with what we call a we blame statement. The two of us were not compatible with one another. We married too young. We had different ideas about what was important to a good relationship. When you can come up with those we statements, and I have clients actually write down at least five we statements, and you continue to say those we statements and think about them, you can let go of the emotions that are connected to the past. So that's one really important strategy. The second important strategy is that you want to try to let go of the emotions in a very constructive way. So some people can exercise. Some people can go in a room and scream. Other people, and I love this suggestion, can write a letter mm -hmm. to their ex-partner and get their emotions all down on paper. Don't send a letter. Lori. Right. Don't so send it. Do not send it. This <laughs> is a strategy for you to let go, not to get your partner back. Right. right. But writing that letter and doing that consistently mm -hmm. over several days, several weeks, several months, you're able to let go of those emotions. And then the third possible strategy, there are many, but just the third possible is that many people continue to do and have things around them that remind them of that previous former partner. Mm -hmm. So they wear jewelry that a partner, ex-partner may have given them. Mm. They have pictures. They go to the same coffee shop or the same gym mm. that their previous partner went to. And what we want to do is take all of those triggers out of our life for at least weeks or months. You can bring them back, but at the beginning, you don't want those objects, things, situations, people in your life because they trigger you into yeah. those emotions. So those are three, I think, really good strategies that people can try to let go of the strong emotions connected to the past. Okay. That's really, really helpful. Um, your newest book is called Secrets to Surviving Your Children's Love Relationships. Can you talk briefly about what it's about and what motivated you to write it? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, as a parent, I know mm -hmm. you're a parent as well, and I'm sure yep. all the parents that are listening, we want what's best for our children, mm -hmm. right? And we worry and are concerned about our children as mm -hmm. well. And I decided to write this book because as I was talking to so many parents all across the world, um, they wanted the best for their children, 
But in terms of relationships, they didn't know about what conversations to have with their adult children or young adult children. And when I talk about young adult children, 15 to 30, let's say, but it's never too early and it's never too late, but they didn't know what kinds of conversations, discussions to have with their children. And they didn't know how to model happy, healthy relationships in front of their children. Mm-hmm. And so I found that writing this book was first very helpful for myself as a parent of two young adult children, but also it was really for parents so that they could learn the science of relationships mm-hmm. to have good, happy, healthy discussions with their children, but also they themselves could model good, happy, healthy relationships in front of their children. For example, I'll give one example. Okay. One of the things I found after interviewing, and again, most of the individuals in my study were parents, single parents and co-parents in happy, healthy relationships. But one of the things they thought was that they should not have disagreements or conflict with a partner in front of their children. And so what we find is that if those kids aren't seeing differences, mm-hmm. aren't seeing conflict and the resolution, healthy, happy, constructive resolution of that conflict, mm-hmm. those kids are growing up thinking that if they do have a disagreement with a partner, something must be wrong with that relationship. Right. And so it's very important for us as parents to do disagreements in front of our children, mm-hmm. not at night in the bedroom so that mm-hmm. they don't know that happy, healthy relationships, even co-parents mm-hmm. have disagreement, but they can resolve it. And how do they resolve it? Because then when they're in a romantic relationship and there inevitably is going to be differences or disagreements, they don't say, uh-oh, I better get out of this relationship because I'm having a difference or a disagreement. Instead, they'll say, okay, this is normal. This is typical. How can I constructively resolve this disagreement? Right. And it's hard though, because a, a lot of people have parents who didn't deal with their disagreements properly. Like they saw a father in the middle of a conflict walk out of the house and go smoke a cigarette or a mother scream and go crying into the room and slam the door so it's you know I can imagine you know this is a cyclical situation where it's going to take a lot of thought and learning about how to have a good relationship to be able to pass down to your kids be able to have this so it's it's complicated and it's 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 challenging this is the tough stuff yeah. It's very challenging. Yeah. I decided to also do another study okay. where I surveyed parents across the world and I asked them what they learned from their parents, just like you said, Lori, mm-hmm. and then what kinds of conversations they were having with their own children. First, what I found is that over 75% of the parents did not see or observe healthy conflict. Right from their parents, whether Mm -hmm. their parents were still together or not. And then those same over 80% 
we're not having discussions about trust, about healthy conflict, about what is the difference between lust and love, Mm. about what is important for a happy, healthy relationship when your children get into a romantic relationship. So not only is it challenging, not only is it cyclical, absolutely, Mm -hmm. but I don't think as parents, we, myself included, are learning how to have those discussions with our children. What do we say? How do we start them? Right. Things like that. And what I love from your book is talking about that trust. Like before you could have any of these conversations, you're, you're, your child or young adult needs to trust you. And so part of building that trust, even if it hasn't been built before in this way, is sharing something about yourself right. with your with your uh, child or young adult. And um, then they, they get a little, they start to see you as a person and not as a parent. Um, exactly. And then they can disclose a little bit of themselves. And then the key is for the parent not to like throw it back in their face later on when they're upset with them or whatever, but really start making that transition, which I think a lot of parents from what I've learned, they have a hard, parents have a hard time transitioning from treating their kids as kids to young adults and then to adults. Exactly. And it's not exactly. something that you learn organically. You need to like really think it through. Like, when do you let it go and wait until your young adult comes to you for advice instead of mm-hmm. you offering it all the time and whatnot. And with helicopter parents and, you know, the Gen Xers being different from their baby boomer parents, uh, you know, again, a lot of learning, a lot of forethought, um, you know, just a lot of out of the box thinking needs to occur. Absolutely. And trust, as you said, is so very important as a parent at all ages, you know, of our children, but we don't learn how to build trust. And I think we learn that we should not share anything of ourselves. And so I think most parents don't do that. But in order to build trust, as you said, and I talk about this in my book, Mm -hmm. you have to share a little bit of your trials and tribulations and challenges. So like you said, I talk about this so that they can see you as a human being, which we all are, and we Mm -hmm. make mistakes. But when our kids know that, they can then listen and come to us. And second, even more important, but I'll say just as important, Laurie, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is that when our kids come to us for advice, we should actually not give them advice, Mm. but instead take our advice in the back of our minds Mm -hmm. and ask our child questions so Mm. that they can discover what they, what we want them to discover our advice without telling them on their own. Because one thing we know when we look at psychology and research is that when people are told what to do, Like if your child comes to you and you say, here's what you should do, and Mm -hmm. this is wrong, and this is right, they may change for a little bit of time, but then they stop. Or they get really upset with you, and they do the opposite, Mm -hmm. right? Because they get defensive, and they don't want to do what you say. But if you can ask them questions, so they discover that on their own, like for example, If you don't like who they're going out with, right? Mm -hmm. Not that they're abusive. I'm not saying that, but you just don't think that this is the right partner for them. Yeah. Ask them questions so they come up with that answer. 
what are, for example, what are the good things that are going on in your relationship right now? How does your partner, romantic partner, make you feel? Get them to think about the good things that should be happening in the relationship that you know are not as a parent. And then they can come up with the discovery and the epiphany on their own. Because when people come up with things on their own and then change or don't stay in a relationship, it lasts significantly more likely to last and the change is longer over time. Right. And it's not just one conversation. It could be a little snippet here, a little snippet there, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Right. It's, it's just not going to happen in conversation. one second, right? Yes. This is an ongoing conversation. Exactly. Which can be hard if your young adult is already out of the house. Mm-hmm. So it can yeah. be hard, you know, and I encourage parents when your young adult child is out of the home to use whatever you have at your disposal, meaning it's okay to have these conversations on the phone. It's okay to have them on FaceTime or Zoom. It's okay to even text conversations. Mm -hmm. Yes, would it be wonderful if your child was, you know, um, face-to-face with you when you were out doing something special and having quality time? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But that's not realistic. So you can ask the questions. You can have the discussions and the conversations whenever you get a little bit of time. And using texting like young adults now do is okay to start and have these conversations. Wow. This has been incredible content, Terry. Incredible. Thank you. Um, Do you have a special charity that you like to give to? I like to uh, refer my, my listeners to uh, my philanthropy dating charitable. That's such a good question, Lori. I love it. Well, um, I am very passionate about poverty and hunger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So any food bank, any um, organization that feeds those who are in need Mm -hmm. um, are dear to my heart, those organizations. Okay, good. I love that. Terry, as always, a pleasure to see you and speak to you and um, really value you so much. And I will speak to you very soon. (laughs) Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Love on the Go. I hope you join us on our next episode. You can make sure to know when it is by following us wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you enjoyed it, it'd be great if you left us a review. I'd appreciate it. In the meantime, to learn more about me and how my team can help you, visit carolinasmatchmaker.com. Until next time.